Hello everyone and welcome to the Hidden Lives of Writers. My name's Fiona Snickers and I'm here with my co-host Gail Schimmel. How are you Gail? How's your writing week been? Fiona, have we talked, and I cannot remember because I have a terrible memory problem, have we talked about the sticky middle? On this show, you've mentioned it. You've you've made a mention of a sagging middle, but you haven't really unpacked it for our readers. So the saggy middle, the sticky middle, the boggy middle—there are lots of words for the middle. Mm. But I'm there. So a standard novel is about eighty thousand words. That's what I write to. Right. And I find from thirty thousand to fifty thousand, mm-hmm. I'm in that middle. Right. And when I when I started writing, I didn't know this was a thing. I wondered why I'd get to 30,000 words and lose faith in my idea and wonder why and think maybe it was a terrible book because that's one of the things that happens to you in the sticky middle. You become convinced that this is the stupidest idea you've ever had and that really you shouldn't be right at all and this is all a big waste of time and you're never going to finish this one because this one is bad. Mm. Um, and that's where I am and it was quite weird that I, I got to a writing session at the beginning of this week and I had thought I was excited for it and then I sat down to write and the words weren't coming and I didn't know which way to go and I didn't know how to develop the idea and I was like, oh, this is such a, why am I even trying to do this? And then I looked at my word count and I was on 29,000. Right. And I was like, oh, it's you, my old friend, the sticky middle. And once you know, mm-hmm. you can power through it. But so that's where I am and I have been slower because of it. Yeah, I mean, they say with less experienced writers, you can actually see it in the work. You can see the the beginning start off with vim and vigor, and it ends strongly. And there's just a bit in the middle that kind of loses its way. It hasn't got the same narrative impetus. So I think it's a it's probably a good idea to have your plot fairly well worked out there. Ah, uh, yes, that would be a good idea. I'm sure Fiona, <laughs> I say, looking to the side with shame and <laughs> not admitting to the very few notes I have on this particular plot. <laughs> and also maybe some scenes that you're excited about, you can sort of shove them there in the middle to keep the impetus yeah, going. Yeah, let me ask you this question before I ask about your writing week. Do you ever skip ahead? Do you write out of order or do you write strictly chronologically? I write strictly chronologically. I know there are authors who skip around, write a whole bunch of scenes and then knit them together afterwards. I can't do that. It just doesn't make sense to me. Also me, also me. And I believe one of the ways out of the sticky middle is to write a scene you're excited about mm. from later in the book. But then then you don't even have something to look forward to. And then what's <laughs> pulling you through the sticky middle? So I definitely won't be trying that. I'm going to be trying my, my tried and tested method of just keep going. Bum on seat and write. Just power through it. Power keep through your it. face. And you, Fiona? I am at the ideas stage mm. of a novel at the moment where it's, it's a new project. I'm kind of playing around with the ideas of a romantic comedy at the moment. And I heard a very interesting podcast the other day, an interview with Shonda Rhimes. That's uh, the showrunner behind Grey's Anatomy, Bridgerton, Private Practice, some of the biggest shows in the yes. world. And she was talking about writing Bridgerton because she writes the stuff as well as um, show runs it. And she was saying that it's so refreshing 
to be writing romance in a historical setting where there is a valid reason for two people not to get together until right at the end. So he's royalty and she's a commoner or <sighs> their two aristocratic families are feuding and they can't get together or um, they've only known each other for six hours and they're getting married already and you know, they haven't had a chance to fall in love yet. They're, they're these built-in very good reasons. Yes. And these days, it's, I believe it, it's getting harder and harder to come up with a reason why two people only get together after 80,000 words. You know what I'm it's saying? So Well, I so know what you're saying because I think we've talked about that, that I'm in the sticky middle of a romantic comedy, whether or not it ever sees the light of day, who knows. And I've had to do a lot of thinking about romantic comedy and that problem for me the biggest challenge is I hadn't thought about what you're saying but that's firstly a challenge but secondly that with a romantic comedy you know from the very beginning the two kind of highlighted characters are going to end up together yes so now how on earth do you create tension around that because the reader knows from the very beginning and in the reading I've done for me and maybe I'm quite fussy but for me eight out of ten romantic comedies it doesn't work. You, yeah. There is not enough tension. You know they're going to end up together, and by the end you couldn't really care if they both die as soon as they end up together. <laughs> That's how uninvested you are. But my reading for the week has been an interesting one with that because I read, because why would you not when you're in the space you and I are in, Curtis Sittenfeld's new book, Romantic Comedy. Ooh, nice. And first of all, do you know Curtis Sittenfeld's work? Only through you and some other people who've reviewed. Do you have the whole backlist to read, Fiona? I think I do. Should I be excited about <gasps> you that? You should be. Basically, I will probably not see you again for the rest of the year. She is magnificent. Mm. It's very hard to say what her best book is. Mm-hmm. I know other people think American Wife or Rodham. Those are the two that are spoken about a lot, and I could go into a whole soliloquy about them. Those are... Both books about what Rodham, I'll talk briefly about Rodham, is a book about Hillary Clinton. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's, so it starts off being very biographical, but then she doesn't marry Bill. Oh, okay. And what? And, and it's just so brilliant. But with romantic comedy, she's taken it to completely new turn because I think when you Curtis Sittenfeld, you can write whatever you want. Mm-hmm. And she's written a rom- romantic comedy. But there's a pun in the name because she has written it about a comedy writer. Oh, right. And the comedy writer notices a certain phenomena in the comedy world and then becomes part of that. And the phenomena is that often quite ordinary men will marry very famous, glamorous, beautiful women, mm-hmm. ordinary funny men. Right. And everyone goes, oh, that's wonderful because he's so funny and obviously she's seen the real him. But it's never the ordinary funny woman yes. who marries the glamorous, um, gorgeous male movie star. Right, right. And then the main character meets this man. Mm-hmm. And then COVID hits. So it's a COVID novel. It's a romantic comedy. It's Curtis Sittenfeld's wonderful writing. It's really, it's delicious. But it shouldn't be your first Curtis Sittenfeld. Okay. That's going to be so my, I must go my, back a bit. You must go back a bit. But if you, if you like me or someone who's gobbled her up, this one's different, but it's delicious. What have you been reading, Fiona? Well, as excited as you are about Curtis Sittenfeld, that's how excited I am about Gabrielle Zevin. I've spoken about her on here before, 
And I've just read her book, Young Jane Young, mm. which is kind of a retelling of the Monica Lewinsky story. It's very clever, very able, very heartwarming. It, it, I just loved everything about it, but it really got me thinking about that time when the Monica Lewinsky story hit and how none of us, you know, who were sort of baby feminists in those days, none of us really thought about or questioned why we were shaming her in that way, 100%. why the narrative was, you know, she's the slut who's trying to bring down the government and poor Bill and poor Hillary. And, you know, she was 19 mm -hmm. years old. Mm -hmm. She was a child. Mm -hmm. And presumably she was attracted to this older, powerful man who's the power dynamic difference was just, I mean, it was outrageous. But she caught all the heat for it. And Absolutely. It, it ruined her life. It, it took her out of public life for years and years. And she's come back as this rather magnificent figure mm, on Twitter. She's ma magnificent. She's great. And she campaigns against bullying. She's spoken about this phenomenon a lot. And I kind of think back on, on myself in those days, the days when Britney Spears was being shamed for shaving her head and Monica mm. Lewinsky was being shamed for having a sexual relationship. And I just think, why didn't we think more about that? Why didn't we question it more? Mm. So it's, it's led to some introspection, I must say. And the, the link with um, young Jane Young? The <laughs> main character, Jane Young, has had to reinvent herself because she works as an intern for a congressman who's actually a friend of her family. So he's her father's age. And they start up a thing in the office and her mother's completely horrified and tries to break it up. But our main character thinks that she knows better and she's all of 19. Mm. And when the story breaks, it does ruin her life. She has to move to another state across the country, reinvent herself, give her this name, give herself this name, Jane Young, and try to start life anew. And it, it questions all these things of the shame machine and how mm. it kicked into action and how it was all directed at her, the 19-year-old girl who did not initiate any of this. And the beloved congressman gets off scot-free and gets to have his career, no problem. Very interesting. Two books, both with interesting themes about feminism and about how we view relationships that are in the public eye. Absolutely. I wonder if our guest today has any thoughts on feminism. <laughs> <laughs> We're definitely going to have to ask. <laughs> We have James Hendry in the studio today. You know him from his best-selling books, A Year in the Wild, Back to the Bush, Reggie and Me, and most recently, Return to the Wild. Fiona, I'm going to interrupt you. I think most people know him from watching him on various safari programs, and um, I haven't watched them, so I'm not entirely sure what they involve. But from what I understand from James's fan base. Mm -hmm. It's people who can see him who know him. Well, Gail, I googled James as part of my research for this podcast. And the first question that came up was, is James Henry married? And um, <laughs> sadly for his fan base, I think the, the answer is yes. <laughs> and another the thing that came up. question about James, in yes, other words. Is, uh -huh. is he married? And another result that came up very quickly was a thirst trap video involving a barefoot 
uh, race in Sabi, uh, I think, where James rips his shirt off and, and runs. And lost. And I, I didn't notice that, but yeah. possibly. You didn't notice that, <laughs> and, and that comes up very, very high as a much searched for. Yes. For results. So, James, welcome to the Hidden Lives of Writers. Thank you. We're so happy to have you here. We've just been talking about feminism, and while I wouldn't say it's fair to say you write feminist books, you do write some interesting women characters. Do you enjoy that? I'm scared of it, actually. Mm -hmm. Um, I had a girlfriend many years ago. It may shock you to hear. (laughs) Uh, It didn't last long, but her points of view certainly woke me up to... Mm -hmm are probably South African, yeah, definitely South African attitudes to women and feminism and chivalry and all that sort of thing. She made me think a great Mm -hmm. deal. And I'm very conscious of her voice in my head when I write women characters, conscious of, I guess, being a white male in South Africa. You, uh, What are we? We're the great Satan in many respects. And you've got to be very careful about trying to write for previously marginalized echelons of society. Mm-hmm. And so I'm tremendously conscious of that. I hope I do a decent job of writing women characters. Yeah, I think thoughtfulness always makes a character yeah. stronger. I, I feel like I'm going to jump ahead almost to where I thought would be mid-interview, but but is that something that's changed for you? Because you, you started writing kind of when I started writing mm. and I worked out the other day, it's about 15 years ago. Yeah. And... Times have changed a lot. Our, yeah. our workness has changed a lot. Yeah. Have you found a big difference in writing the first book in the wild versus this Absolutely. next return to the wild? Absolutely. I mean, in fact, this girlfriend that I was seeing at the time, I had just finished A Year in the Wild and I sort of gave her a copy. She was a Mail and Guardian journalist, so I thought she might enjoy my writing. Well, <laughs> 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 And the first thing she said to me was, this is so sexist. And I took huge offense, obviously. But I came to see why she said the things that she did. And I read that book now, and I know that I wouldn't write in the same way now Mm, as I would have 15 years ago. I don't think it's necessarily particularly offensive, but there are definitely things I look at and I think, ooh. You know, mm-hmm. when you're not writing in the first person, especially. So it's such an interesting thing. Those two Marion Keys novels that are set up the um, Rachel's yeah, Holiday Water and again Man. Rachel when yes, I when yes, I reread yes, yes. Rachel's Holiday, there are things in that that now you go, oh, ouch! Mm-hmm. Yeah, should you really have used that mm-hmm. word? Is that really how we want yeah. to say that? And back then you wouldn't have blinked. Yeah, yeah. all of us who've had a, a pretty long writing career mm. stretching across a decade or more we look at our early work yeah it's not pristine you look at it and think i would do things and say things yeah. differently now i'm too scared to reread my first book <laughs> yeah um, too scared. I, I also think that it's i am conscious of not using it was a product of its time as an excuse because i do think it's used an excuse as an excuse, you know, particularly with things like the roads must fall movement and that sort of stuff, the Rhodes' apologists will say, well, you know, that's just how it was at the time. And, you know, maybe to some of his attitudes that may be some sort of justification, but to many others it just isn't. And so is that an excuse? Yes, it probably is in some cases. It's an explanation, if it's not an excuse. It's an explanation, excuse. yeah. And, yeah. 
We've skipped ahead. We haven't yeah. found out how your writing week's been, no. James. That's normally where we start. <laughs> I haven't done any writing this week other than emails. <laughs> um, but when you do write, when you're in the thick of a book, what does your writing week or your writing session look like? I'm going to have to say that I don't know at this stage because since I finished my last book, um, a child has been born to my family. And oh, that means I love that the way you separate that out from yourself entirely. A child has <laughs> been born to my family. You've had a baby, yes, James. Yes. Well, my wife did have something to do with it. I like to tell her she made very little effort, but that's obviously not true. Um, and so what it used to be that I'd write in the morning before I had to get on with the, the day's work, I'm have come to love the dawn so I'll get up at five o'clock and I'll have a cup of coffee and I'll normally write then I find myself the most creative then mm -hmm. and then sort of start proper work around eight-ish if possible that is not possible anymore because my child gets up no matter how early I get up She's up 20 minutes later. So <laughs> 20 make, minutes later? Yeah. I thought you were going to say 20 minutes earlier. No, because that was not. my experience no. of babies. They wake yes. up 20 minutes before you want to wake up. Yeah, that's only because I'm, I get up so mm. early. Yeah. Uh, and so I don't know how it's going to look for the next one. Um, I think I'm going to have to wait for her to get a bit older before I start writing again. Uh, just about a year, I reckon. Right, right. So I used to write in the morning. And I would do the editing sort of on the weekends. Shame. He thinks it's going to get easier. That's so sweet. <laughs> some bits will get easier and some bits will get a lot harder. Oh, God. Um, I think that for me was a, a big – I had to change my writing process yeah. completely when I had children. What about you, Fiona? Yeah, I adapted it. I mean, when I had toddlers, I would – follow a few steps behind them as they toddled around and I had a dictaphone in my hand uh, and would would speak my words okay. into a machine yeah, and, and transcribe it children. at night. Um, um, and, you know, when they were at school, there would be a few precious hours in the sort yes. of mid-morning that worked for me. Okay. And now that they're out of the house, I'm doing what you used to do, which okay. is the very early morning yeah. shift. So one has to be flexible. Yeah. Because we don't want you to stop writing. Tyrus. No, no, I don't want to stop writing either. Um, and, you know, employment and that sort of thing, while one is grateful for it, does definitely hamper one's or take away one's time. Um, James, yeah. I wanted to ask you about the process of writing sequels to novels. Yeah. And whether in your case that has driven by, it's been driven by a love of that world and a love of the characters, or is it the readers and the publishers who just won't let you leave that world? Uh, it's a bit of both. I love, I really do love the world and the characters. It's a world I find easy to write because I've lived it so, mm -hmm. for so long. Uh, and so that's not hard. The Angus character in the book, in the, certainly in the second two, you know, from whose perspective the story is told is very much an unfiltered version of me. So it's a, it's great fun to be able to write him. And so, yeah, it hasn't, for the Bush books, it really hasn't been, um, a trial, but the publishers have said, you know, after Reggie and me, they said, let's do another Bush one. And yeah, I mean, so I certainly didn't object to it. Yeah. 
I mean, I thought this was going to be my final question, but are we are we going to see Angus having a baby and a wife? Um, I don't up think so. Time? I don't know. Um, I tell you what, I don't. the The thing that I really enjoyed about Angus's stories oh. is that each of them has been a bit of a love story. Yes, mm-hmm. and um, that ends as soon as he gets married. Right. Um, no, you know what I mean. <laughs> you, you know that that kind of the romance dies from nothing. <laughs> it becomes much less. Um, I suppose it does. There's romantic it's, tension. Will yeah, they end up together? Rom- or exactly. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to yes. say. So, what you're telling us? I mean, you and I have talked about this before. That I find it quite hard to put your books into a particular genre because mm. there's an aspect of um, drama, there's an aspect of rom-com as what mm. we're talking about now and Fiona and I have been talking about rom-com a lot and um, there's an aspect and I've asked you about this where it's it's a bit of a bonk fest. I mean um, you've given me a new <laughs> a new vision of a life in, in the wild and what goes on in these safari lodges and really I, I'm regretting my early 20s that I too did not yeah. go and live in a safari lodge um, because it sounds like everything happens mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. A, a, where do you put your books? What would you say the genre is? I don't know. I, I'd, you know, the greatest compliment anyone can ever pay me is that my book made them laugh. Mm-hmm. So I hope that they, people see them as funny. I hope that there is an underlying conservation message there. I'd never say that to somebody if they said, "Do you, you know, what are your books about?" I'd never say they're conservation books. But I hope that they will draw people into the wilderness because that's a that's very dear to me. Um, so I al- al- almost always write. If somebody says, "Will you sign the book?" I say, "I hope you'll enjoy this in a beautiful place" or something like that, um, because I hope that it conjures some kind of yen to get out into the wild. So genre, I don't know. I mean. I like in comedy. I think yeah. humor, humor, comedy. Yeah. I think that fits the that really is the strongest mm. compliment anyone can give me. Mm, I would agree. Yeah. Do you think that is an error that wildlife writers tend to make? That they tend to sort of hammer the message home a bit too hard, tend to be a bit too preachy. This is a conservation novel. Do you think that's a common mistake? I think writing about conservation is a very fast way to make sure you don't sell any books. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a very fast way to make sure you don't sell a film concept right. uh, or a nature film concept. You know, my wife and I have made a couple of YouTube series and some of them have done very nicely. And the one that we thought was filmically strong and had a really strong message was about a conservation NGO in KZN and it bombed really you know people are just not interested um so you've got to tell a message subtly right and this right. is something you do you 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 have the subtle conservation message and you actually also have a subtle political message um you know well, I hope so yeah We've, we've talked a bit like you, you feel strongly about the politics of Fanagalore and that yeah. comes out in the latest book um can you talk to us a bit about that that political message that is is the under message of your books? Yeah, and I can. I mean, let's start with Reggie and me. So there were yeah. the two Bush books first, um, A Year in the Wild, and then Back to the Bush. And then I wanted to write something serious. I had another ex girlfriend <laughs> who said these who, and I, I resent her for this in some ways. She said these 
these flippant bush books are beneath you, which I now yeah, I, 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 to- I really totally disagree with. But you at don't the time, have very nice woman no, um, well, in your history. I married a very nice one, thankfully, <laughs> um, and I think that I think she was wrong. She's completely wrong. But she said you need to write something serious and weighty. So I was going to write this treatise on South Africa um, with a, a thing on um, our bio, the biology basically behind our biases and tie it into South African society. So this was going to be just, non-fiction. Was and I'm putting it on the table now. I'm not doing the launch for that. Yeah, one. yeah. <laughs> you won't ever have to. And I took it to... Andrea Natris at Pan Macmillan, and I said, this is going to be my next book. And she... <laughs> I've firm, seen that look on her yeah, face yeah. before. Yeah, very firmly and kindly said, no, no one will read this. Uh, you're a white male, forget it. Maybe in 20 years' time you can write this book, but now <laughs> absolutely forget it. So I went back and I fictionalized it, and I thought... And it had nothing to do with biology. And I wrote a story about a little kid, overprivileged white kid, growing up in Johannesburg from 1976 when I was born, which was an auspicious year in our country's history, to 1994, which was also an auspicious year in our country's history. And it's largely a fun story, Mm -hmm. but there's an underlying political thing there. Mm -hmm. And Andrea was very clear because I made it quite overt to start with. She said, just take it out. It doesn't need – you can see it. You People will see what they need to see in this book. Mm. And it was infinitely stronger for that. And I thought it was quite a f- fun story. There were some mm. amusing bits in it. Mm. There were some sad bits too, but it was funny in many respects, I think. And then some reviewer in the Cape Times um, – <laughs> And I, I forget who it was, and if I ever meet her, I will have a lot to say to her. She said, this is a devastating commentary on white privilege, which, of course, killed it stone dead. No one was ever going to buy it having read, read that. You know, anybody who'd read that as a review in the Cape Times, which is a largely white audience, was never going to go and think, oh, yeah, this is great. I'd love to go and read a devastating commentary on white privilege. Mm-hmm. Um, and so moving on to the, to the other books, yes, there is an underlying political message that I feel quite strongly about, but I would never say it outright because Andrea was so right when she said, just let people take from it what they want to. And so some people will read back to the bush and see uh, an amusing bush story. And I think a lot of people from overseas do that because mm. the funner galore stuff won't, resonate with them won't mean anything to them some South Africans will read it and feel there's something there and others will not see it and will ignore it and that's fine I'm just going to say I found Reggie and me a heartwarming commentary on white privilege Okay. Um, and you know, I, yeah. there is definitely a commentary on white privilege sure. there because we all do come mm. from, from yeah. the uh, white privilege background and you write about that and you write about a world I know well. Yeah. So, so, I, you know, it, it's interesting for me, but it was heartwarming for me and it was hopeful and it was positive and it was amusing. And yeah. honestly, if we can't laugh at our white privilege, what can we yeah. do with it? And I mean, the nicest review I had was from a, a, the SAFM, I forget who it was, she was a, a guest reviewer who came in to, and did an SAFM review 
and she was black and she read it and she read it exactly how I wanted it mm. to be interpreted. She saw that this kid, although he was privileged and white, what resonated with her was that he was an oddball at school mm. and she'd mm -hmm. been an oddball at school. And so even though she was a female black South African, that she found a resonance in the character and that was very powerful mm. for me. Yeah. I found that book quite hard to read in parts. Did you? The the cruelty of okay. the schooling system, the way this kid just didn't fit in, the yeah. the sadism of some of the teachers. There were there were bits of it. I mean, I I agree with everything you say about it, Gail, but it it had an an underlying darkness which I think made it stronger as mm. a narrative, which was new. Um, mm. But but your even your bush books have a darker element to yeah. them. Is that something that you, that sort of comes in despite you or, um, is it just there in the nature well, of the wild? I think it's in me. You mm -hmm. know, I think that, um, a lot of people who try to be funny have a very dark side to them. Mm -hmm. And I definitely am not a clinical depressive by any stretch. Uh, but I go through bouts of melancholy. Like, I mean, I think we all do, but a lot of, a lot of, I mean, I hesitate to call myself a comedian, but a lot of people who have a knack for humor mm. have a, you know, we're quite up and down. Mm -hmm. And I do think that that feeds into the characters um, and makes them a little richer than they might be. And there is, you know, the wilderness does have that. It absolutely has that. Um, you know, we go into the wild and we draw such healing from nature but there is this underlying savagery there that I think mm -hmm. feeds quite nicely into the story. Um, you know, and a, when a lion kills an impala, yes, he needs to eat. But the trauma mm -hmm. and horror that that impala experiences as it dies is very real and mm -hmm. very awful. Um, and, and I think and, yeah. we've glossed over that. It's, it's, and it's something that's very hard about being a nature lover that yeah. you, you want to see the kill. Yeah. You want to have that experience yeah. of seeing the kill. I mean, we'd all love to go mm. on a drive and see the kill, but also you really don't want yeah. to see the kill because that poor yeah. part is going to die. Mm. I'd rather see it just, just as it's happened and it's too late it's, for me to worry about it. It's why Parler. that's exactly how they will make a BBC documentary. You'll see the chase and then you'll see them eating. Yeah. But you will not see the moment that the light flickers from their eyes. And we found that very strongly um, when we were doing the live safaris in Kenya during the migration. There, you know, you have these crossings of the river mm. and the crocodiles take the animals. Mm. God, it's awful. And people just, we thought, well, this huge action, we're going to get massive traction on videos like this. And people are not, they don't want to watch horror like that. They get enough of it in their lives. You've given me a childhood memory. On felt school, either standard five <laughs> yes. or standard eight, we watched a documentary about the wildebeest trekking around Africa in their wildebeesty way. Mm. And it was just one horror show after another. Yeah, they were drowning. They were being eaten. They were being, mm. I was traumatized yeah. by that for months. And yet, if you extract yourself in the Maasai Mara from the granular what's going on on the ground, you cannot help but be utterly inspired and captivated but dig down a bit and there is this underlying tension all the time yeah so 
in a a short answer is yes there is an underlying darkness there that um, I think is part of me the wilderness lends itself to that as did the the background to Reggie and me James as you're speaking you're bringing me back to a question that I think I ask you in various forms and I never Mm -hmm. in my head get a clear answer you have this safari life Mm. Where you are a professional, I don't, I don't even know really how to explain what you do. You are a professional guide, guide, um, professional safari leader, yeah. and also you, you do not a ranger, not a ranger, not a ranger. I'll explain <laughs> that. Yeah. We can talk about yeah. why that's important. Um, but and you do shows, you do YouTube shows, you have a huge international following for this, and then you have your writing, mm. and you take your writing seriously in your mind. Which one of those things are you more? Is that an unfair question? Are you a safari leader who no. writes or a writer who safaris or something else entirely? I, really, we, I haven't even talked about the art and the music. I don't – art. Um, <laughs> the, uh, I don't know what I am. I'm, a, I'm an accidental both on both counts of those. Um, I'm not a ranger. A ranger is – and the, I didn't used to make the distinction. I do now. They're the guys who are – out there defending the wilderness. Those are the guys patrolling the fences, facing the poachers, dealing with the with that stuff. And so I think it is is Angus a ranger? No, he's a guide. Okay. And it's okay. they call at the at the lodges they call themselves rangers. Right. And we used to call right. ourselves That's rangers. I but confused. I think it's not these days because of what those guys are going through, I feel like it's we have to make the distinction. Um so, I mean, I was never going to be a writer. I was never going to be a guide. I was going to be a, a musician. That was what I planned to do. Um, and I did a biological degree because my father said, you will do a degree. Uh, I don't care what you do, but you're going to do one. And you won't do it at home. So he said, you're going to go off somewhere and you will do a degree. So this was the most interesting thing. And I did a general science degree. <laughs> Another girlfriend who said, we're going to the bush. <laughs> And, uh, it's just all scattered yeah, with it is, it is. Yeah, um, and she said, we're going to the bush. And uh, so I thought they'd keep her and send me away and I'd go back to Joburg. And it worked out exactly opposite to that. And so I ended up in the bush as a guide. She went off somewhere else, which was great. And um, so I know, and I really fell into it it was not something that I ever wanted to do I didn't know what a guy did when I started the training course I literally didn't know what they did and I only became a writer because eventually having been a guide for a while and due to catastrophic lack of other talent they made me head ranger at the lodge I was at and I had to write the sightings updates every every week and I, I mean, I think I've told you the story, but my, I sent the first one to my father who sent back a pleaty email about what he'd wasted his money on my education <laughs> for because I couldn't write English. And he was absolutely <laughs> right. He was absolutely right. And over the course of many weeks, he would correct painstakingly the efforts I sent him. And that's how I became a writer, basically. Um, with your father as your with, primary teacher. Uh, really? We're not going to name the school no, that you went to, years, but shame on 12 them. 12 years of that. Uh, and in fact, even before that, at, at university, the, our physiology lecturer said the biggest trouble with all of you, and this was people from all walks of life, is that you cannot write. 
and he'd never read anything we'd written. And he was absolutely right. I mean, we were completely, um, certainly those of us who've been very privileged in our upbringing, we thought we were very good writers, but we were horrific. Anyway, um, so I don't know what I am. Um, I, I don't like to be thought of as a safari guide, no. I mean, I don't like to be thought of, I prefer to be thought of as a writer, I think. But I don't write enough books to be thought of only as a writer. I don't know. Um, for you, you're getting up there. You, you, <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. There are people yeah. who would claim that title after one <laughs> yes. unpublished book in a drawer somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I once wrote a short story. I am a writer. Yeah. <laughs> I have uh, a book inside me. Yeah. Yes. Like you're a photographer if you've got an iPhone. Um, so I don't know. Um, I think I'm both. And... You know, I mean, a large proportion of my time now is spent doing this live safari presenting. So am I a wildlife TV presenter? Well, I have been. But again, I would hate to think that that's all I was, you know. So I don't know. And what's happened to the music? The music is actually um, now almost entirely playing to my daughter, who is remarkably tolerant. (laughs) It's great. So in the morning, she'll have her bottle then she'll sit on her play mat and I'll throw whatever she wants to play and then I'll play and sing to her. And she sits and looks at me like this and sometimes she joins in. Excellent. Um, I hope that her voice is going to improve, but she does. Um, <laughs> it's very cute, you know, aged seven months. And I gave her a ukulele the other day and she started plinking on it. So maybe maybe it's the start of something special. Sweet. <laughs> yeah, so that's, I mean, I haven't, recorded or played a gig for a long time. Um, and briefly before I let Fiona in, I'm sorry, Fiona, <laughs> and you think the amount of times I'd interviewed James, you think I'd be out of questions, but apparently I'm not. Um, the art. Let's just talk very briefly, Fiona. I don't know if you know about his secret art career. I did not know about this. This is news to me. This is really something we shouldn't talk about. But <laughs> no, but I love it. I love it. The mugs and T-shirts and things. Ah, merch. A while back. My wife said to me, um, let's make a little series called The Sunday Sketch where I would take a photograph that I'd taken of wildlife. And the photography. I forgot the photography. And I would then teach people how to draw this animal. The joke being that I literally, I am the worst, most childish drawer in the world. I'm really seriously bad. And I know a lot of people think they're bad, but I am truly, truly (laughs) appalling. I have no sense of proportion uh, and I'm really bad. Anyway, so I said, okay, we'll do it. And that was quite funny. We'd put them out on Instagram and people would have a giggle. And then in 2019, we were all retrenched from the wildlife jobs we were doing. And she said, "Um, uh, I'm going to put these on T-shirts. People will buy them. I said, you got to be out of your mind I said by all means go ahead but no one is going to buy this level of crud well lo and behold I mean we haven't retired on the proceeds (laughs) but there is now a large (laughs) catalogue of t-shirts mugs, tote bags beach towels beanies, caps uh, and various other bits and pieces that you can buy online with my horrific wildlife art. Well, in my copy of Return to the Wild, you drew me a lovely lion, and I'm going to share that on social media because really it is the sweetest lion ever drawn. 
Anyway, and the, I mean, the great irony is that I have made more money out of art than a lot of artists have. And it's not a lot, but it's, 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 it's more than most. James, you talked about ups and downs, and you've just mentioned retrenchment. Yeah. Um, so tell us about some of the, the lows in your career. Tell us about the COVID years, the lockdown yeah. years. Um, what sort of challenges have you faced? Have there been hard times where it seems as though, you know, that things are not going to get better? Um, COVID, interestingly, was a great time for me because mm. I was doing these live safaris. And did you start doing them because no, of COVID? No, I mean, I'd been doing it for years before. We were retrenched in 2019. The business ran out of money. Mm-hmm. 2020 came along. We were doing. I was doing a bit of freelance work. My wife was also doing a bit of freelance work with um, the same company. It's called Wild Earth. Mm-hmm. And uh, they over the, we had a sort of six-week contract booked or three-week contract booked to go to, into the Savi Sands to do a little bit of contract work post our honeymoon. And COVID hit. We were the last um, – let me get this right. We're the last, the first, the first COVID case in Howick in South Africa mm-hmm. was on the weekend we got married. Right. We went off to the Khalakhadi for honeymoon to camp. And <clears throat> it's a good test of a marriage, that, by the way. I was about to say, people who camp on their yeah. honeymoons, it's, it's not something I can relate yeah, yeah. to very well. No, 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 it was brave. Anyway, we got, we went into Botswana. Uh, the Botswana side of the Kalahari where there's no signal or anything and we came out four days later and the world had gone mad mm. um, yeah it had literally gone mad we knew it was a COVID had come but we didn't realize and they said to us at Nosop camp you've got 24 hours or 48 hours to get where you're going to be for the next six weeks because lockdown's coming so we phoned the lodge and the lodge said at the, you know Wild Earth said if you can be at Juma you'll be here for six weeks as opposed to lockdown somewhere. So mm. we got in the car and we drove from the Khalakhadi to the Sabi Sands in two nights. And we arrived at five to seven and the lockdown started at seven o'clock. Right. I've got like shoppers from this and story. And so for seven, six weeks, while well, the rest of the country and the world was stuck in their homes. Mm. We uh, weren't allowed out no. the front door. I was in the bush and there was nobody else there. So I was going for runs and taking the drives. The animals were all so confiding because of the lack of human activity. So COVID for me really wasn't a downer at all. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I feel very, I don't feel bad saying that. I feel sad that I was the only one who experienced it. But we really didn't have a tough time during COVID. Lows. Um, yeah, being retrenched was a real low. Look, I've been a a safari guide my whole life, which means that I have not been a um, a man who's made a lot of Tom. You know, it's not a particularly lucrative occupation. And, and so you became a writer. And so I became a writer. <laughs> I mean, can you, but what an idiot. I had a five-year period as a guitar teacher which was also famously a, a route to yeah, riches to riches and fame and i think that that was a tough it was a tough 5 years uh, i don't i don't i don't i have such respect for people who can do it as a career who can teach as a career and i'm 
absolutely astounded I lasted five years. Um, and it, it was a trying, it was a trying time. But James, would you say your love of human beings was part of what made that such a satisfying I think it was. Yeah. experience? Yeah. Especially young human beings, <laughs> young privileged human beings, yeah, made me really appreciate, uh, our species. Cause that was a tough time. Emotionally, I'd come through a horrible breakup. I don't know why that we keep getting on to ex-girlfriends. Because <laughs> um, there haven't actually been that many. That Those that there have been have obviously just been fairly powerful influences. Um, it's a horrible breakup. And Johannes back in Joburg after being in the bush for such a long time. Uh, yeah, it was that was a tough time. But I don't – I'm very lucky in that I haven't experienced a huge amount of personal tragedy. You know, that's not to say I won't. But, you know, I've, although I've never done a job that's been particularly lucrative, I've been careful. I haven't lived beyond my means um, for the most part. And I think that's, I think that has been a key to reducing the amount of stress that I've had in life. Um, yeah. I'm going to add there that anyone listening who wants to have a humorous take on the guitar teaching years, the beginning of Return to the Wild, <laughs> I was gives just you a very clear say. picture into that. Um, I suspect it, I know that Angus is sometimes more James than other times. Would that be fair to say? And I think the guitar teaching part, there's James is very much alive and well that, in that section. That first, um, scene, although it didn't occur in Cape Town like it does in the book, where the can I I'll just describe it where the child is it's midwinter it's freezing outside there's a howling wind blowing and this beastly six or seven year old who's been hacking away at the same lesson for six weeks because he will not practice his parents are either too inept or disinterested to make him practice and he was sitting there hacking away at his g-string and this globule it's of snot. string is a part of a guitar, not yes. an underwear. No, no, no. The, the, <laughs> the third that. string on the guitar. And his this globule fell out of his nose onto the soundboard and disappeared into the hole of the guitar, never to be seen again. And I remember thinking to myself, good God, you... <laughs> How much further could you fall than this? <laughs> and then in the book, the mother blames Angus for the child's Absol lack of progress. Absolutely. Always. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I'm a parent now, so maybe I will be this parent. But the amazement and joy and awe that parents could bring to watching the incompetence on display when their children played in public was absolutely unbelievable. <laughs> We're going to talk to you about that in 10 years' time because… It will be me. It will be you. Yeah. I can tell you. Uh, my daughter is currently learning to play the guitar. Okay. I don't, I'm that mom. I don't make her practice. I okay. have got no idea oh, if she's no. good or not. But I'm sure if she ever agrees to play in public, you I will be the proudest mom in the yeah. audience. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you also good. develop a, a high tolerance for snot as a parent, I yes. think. Yes. <laughs> I'm starting <laughs> the, to learn that. The young days are quite snotty, and yes. then you kind of grow out of it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, James, we've touched on it a bit, but I want to talk to you about this extraordinary fan base you have. The people who make this, the first Google question, is mm. James Henry married? Um it's an extraordinary thing. You can can you explain your fan base where they where they are 
who they are, and how you found them. Depends who's going to listen to this podcast. <laughs> well, um, I'm hoping your entire fan base is going to be listening to this <laughs> podcast. So it all comes from my live safari days, largely. Um, you know, and I'm back doing that stuff now. But, you know, in 2015, I started doing these live safaris. Again, it was going to be a 12-month, a three-month thing. And then before I found something else, and, you know, it just has carried on. And it's, yeah, it's, it's largely American. Um, there's a bit of British as well. Um, and they're people who watch the live safaris who derive joy from them. And now in South Africa post lockdown, because that's really mm. where I developed a South African fan base, mm. if you can call it a fan base. Um, that's, it's the, it's from those. And so people who, who buy the books generally are, are those are those people who have who have watched me on the live safaris? And I think they've been caught by the humour. Would I be, be right? Absolutely. I think that's really. I think if there is something that distinguishes me from, there are some very good wildlife presenters out there. There are very few who manage to sustain a humorous take. Um, and I think if I have a a, U, a USP, uh, that's what it is. Um, yeah, that's definitely been my kind of angle has been trying to infuse humor into into my presenting. And then we have the thirst trap aspect, <laughs> that, that you're not the worst looking guide out there. Well, I so. hope not. <laughs> I, 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 Is that a commentary I'm on re- the others? Relatively God, symmetrical. <laughs> no, there's some very good looking guys out there, I'm sure. Well, we've already established yeah. what yeah. goes on in these safari yes. lodges. So clearly everybody is beautiful. Yeah. You don't have to be beautiful to, for, for khaki fever to take. Um, you just have to be there. <laughs> you just have to be there in khaki with a raffle over your shoulder and a Land Rover. I completely misspent my 20s. I'm really (laughs) having regrets. Now, I've watched some fairly uh, unappealing human beings uh, make themselves deeply appealing to some otherwise really appealing human beings just by virtue of their khaki uniforms, (laughs) the 375 over their shoulders and the and the Land Rover that they're driving. <laughs> That's ridiculous, isn't it? James, I wanted to ask how you chose to structure your four novels because the first one is a series of emails mm. sort of written by Angus and by Hugh yeah. to their sister, kind of giving their own take on um, different events that are happening yeah. at the lodge. And then the second one is... Um, very much structured around Angus's journal. Mm. Um, and the most recent one is more of a kind of close third person narration where yeah. you, you focus on Angus as your main character. Yeah. And then Reggie and me, um, slightly more removed third yeah. person, um, telling the story of Reggie and your protagonist is. Uh, Hamish. Hamish, that's <laughs> right, that's right. Yeah. Um, so h- how did you choose that? Why did you with, not choose to continue with the emails so the in first, the books? The first one is in email format because two of us started writing it. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I didn't so know that. So Hugh, mm. who is basically the general manager of Londolozi, ah. um, is not my brother. He's a very good friend of mine. And he and I started writing this book together. We sat around the fire one night and said we have to write a book together because we shared the same sense of humor and we came up with these characters. Let's write ourselves in our most extreme way. He is, 
He is tall. He is hugely gregarious, loves people, loves entertaining people, and I'm not. Um, and so we started writing it, and we said, well, how the hell are we going to write this thing together? Because we don't want to sit and read over each other's shoulders. And so we said, well, let's write to our sister. Mm-hmm. And we'll, we'll discuss an incident, and then we'll go and write in, from different perspectives, and that's how we'll do it. And we loved it. And we got about halfway along, and I took it to the publishers, and Pan said, yes, we'll take it. And I went back to him and I said, they'll take it. And he took it to his bosses and they said, you either do this book or you find a new job. Gosh. Um, oh, wow. Literally. Okay. Because that he would be damaging the brand in well, some way? Well, that's what or? they thought. I mean, okay. well, they've since, we've since rectified all of that. Anyway, he couldn't carry on writing it and I carried on in that format. Right. Um, and so it didn't make sense in the next book to do it the same way. It made mm-hmm. And the, the other reason it didn't make sense was that it it put people, some people off, not once they started reading it, but it stopped a lot of people actually buying the book because they went into it and they thought, oh, this is not really, you know, it's not what I'm used to. It's mm. not what I really want to do. Some people have a strong resistance to, what are they called? Epistolary. Epistolary novels. novels. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. People have a thing about them. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I just – we. Between Andrea and I, we just decided that, you know, much better idea to write from one perspective. And I decided to do it as a journal because I have a very linear mind. Um, I have to have the thing. I find uh, chronological order in a book a much easier way for me to conceptualize it. And to the extent that I, I actually wrote out and I did this for the first two, and in fact, and to a large extent, the third one, where I'd have two pieces of full scap. I'd write a literally drawn arc, a, mm-hmm. the narrative arc, where you know mm-hmm. we had the high point, and I didn't know what those arcs, what the incident was going to be that would take us to the high point mm-hmm. or the resolution, and three acts and three little miniature narrative arcs before I'd even barely knew the characters. And then I would split it into 52 weeks because that was the length of the year. Mm-hmm. And and then I wrote in incidents along this piece of paper. Before you've even started writing the no, book, I'm, you're putting yeah, the individual I'm doing incidents doing the little incidents in. in. And so that I have a map before I even start. And then when I get sick of that, then I'll go to the beginning of the book and I'll start writing it. And then that obviously triggers more ideas. And by the time... I got sort of, and this has happened in all four books, by the time I've got sort of halfway, that plan has almost fallen by the wayside. And I I do go back to it every so often when I have a block, but it very much, as you will know, your characters, when I first read that characters take on a life of their own, I thought that's absolute garbage, Mm -hmm. absolute rubbish. But they do, as you know. They become their own people they become their own personalities and they don't do what you think that they're going to do and in every single book um the the no well not reggie and me was always going to be like it was i guess but with the others the love story has played out in a way that i never expected it to um when i started writing for both of them the love story the love interest was always going to be someone other than who she ended up being, um, right. which was always quite fun, you mm. know. Um, so that's how I plan them. 
uh, and I do have a very linear mind. And I think in the in this last book, in Return to the Wild, there is a bit of chronological jumping around. I was going to say yeah. because it, it starts off with Angus, the guitar teacher. Yeah. Then we have to find out how, how he did he there. get there, and yeah. then how is he going to get back to? Is it Salekile? Sasegile. Sasegile. Yeah. Um, back to the the game lodge, so the sort yeah. of adventure can continue. Yeah. That was an interesting. Choice. And I don't think I could have done that when I started. Mm-hmm. I think it's you know I'm sure for you guys it you get you hope that you get better as you as you write, and I think I mean I think every artist in the world likes to think that their latest piece of work is the best piece of work they've ever done. So I, I'm I'm cognizant of that when I say that I do think this is. The fourth one is the best one I've I've done, and I think it just is a maturing of styles mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. to be able to jump about a bit chronologically. But when I first wrote the plan, there was it was chronological mm. because I find it very hard. I'm not imaginative enough to think outside of time, and so it started off day, January the first and ended December the thirty first. In in actual fact, it ended up only being six months. Right. Yeah. That is so interesting. So much of that resonates with me. Yeah. Um, and the characters taking the lead, I also initially thought that people were yeah. mad if they thought that that was going to happen. Yeah. But it does. Does it happen to you? It does. I, in a way, I wish it happened more. Mm. Because when I get to that sweet spot mm. where a character's really taken over and is creating a, a narrative momentum yeah. and I'm being swept along in it, that really is the f- most fun yeah. part of writing. That's yeah. lovely. You yeah. feel like you're channeling something rather than creating it. Sort of. yeah. But, but for me, the, the blood from a stone moments <laughs> outweigh the channeling yeah. moments unfortunately I think they must do for all of us you know unless you are maybe Stephen King doesn't have them uh, but yeah that blood from a stone there's horrible moments when you're sitting staring <laughs> thinking I got nothing <laughs> I really got nothing and then eventually you work through it I guess yeah. James you have mentioned to me before your your word count when you deep in the writing mm. thing and and I'm going to ask you to tell everybody what it is but I'm going to also ask do you think that very high word count is the result of the meticulous planning you do first tell us what your word count today when you're writing so I read Stephen King's book and I don't read his other books because I find them too horrifying it's called The Craft I think on it's writing. on writing it so, is yeah. the best book on the craft it okay. is it is and he said he writes 2,000, 3,000, I think he does, 3,000 words a day before he will look at an email, go to the shops, do anything. And he says sometimes that'll take him two hours, sometimes it'll take him eight hours. But that's it. It has to be those words. Some people do it on time, and I try to do it on words. And when I was doing Reggie and Me, it was a 1,000 words a day because I was, I was fully employed. And when I was writing the other book, I was also fully employed, but um, hated my job. So I did 2,000 words a day. 2,000 words a day. But yeah, not, but I mean, but no, but very few of those would ever make it into the book. So there was no editing of that. That's mm. just 2,000 words that could be a stream of consciousness, literally. So, it would, And I had no idea of the quality of them. Sometimes you'd keep most of it, and a lot of the time, you know, a lot of it would just go. And if I have a talent, it's a talent for being able to sit on my backside. Mm. Even if my mind is wandering, 
I will force myself to sit there. And so that for me worked. And I know for other people it's time. You know, I'll spend two hours on this. And if it's I get five words or 2,000, then that'll be what you do. And when you have to throw those words away, is it heartbreaking? It was to begin with. But I've forgot where I read this, but you have to be ha- happy to kill your darlings. Yes. Who yes. said that? Do you know? Do you I remember? think it's become such a... You have it, I'd, I'd have to Google to find out where yeah. that is, but it's, yeah, but it's become a thing. I got used to killing my darlings. I and want I mean, to say it's Dorothy Parker. Let's see. Should I Google now and see if I'm right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Go for it. So I think, yeah, for, for me, it's become a lot easier to kill my darlings. Andrea from Pan Macmillan killed so many darlings <laughs> to start with. Uh, she's a darling murderer. Um, you, you learn to kill your own darlings yeah, just to you, save them from being exactly massacred. Exactly, from being massacred by her. I mean, that's an editor's job. So it is sometimes you think, God, oh, it's such a waste that I wrote all this. Um, but without it, you wouldn't have the development of the character and the story. Yeah. I have Googled. Mm. It says, Murder Your Darlings is a popular piece of writing advice that is often attributed to William Faulkner. Am I saying that right? Yes. But which can actually be traced back to the English writer and surname collector, Sir Arthur Quiller Koch, which does raise questions about what a surname collector is. But um, With with a surname (laughs) like that. (laughs) (laughs) Mm. So there we have it. Okay, interesting. So, James, we like to ask all our guests what they've been consuming in the way of narratives lately. What have you been reading or listening to or watching that has irritated you immensely or struck a chord or that you've loved? What can you tell us? I listen to a lot of, can I say this in public, fantasy. Mm. Um, <laughs> Gail said yeah. it many times. The, the heroic fantasy I really enjoy. So audiobooks, you're listening to I that li- stuff. I don't read it. Right, I right. normally listen to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I normally read nonfiction and listen to fiction. I don't know why. Oh, I do know why, actually. I know why I don't listen to nonfiction because I've tried. Um, I like to go back in books and it's much, it's too hard to do it on an audiobook. Mm-hmm. And then to reference it and that sort of thing. Anyway, um, so I've been listening to Brent Weeks, who's a an American thankfully not read by an American, but an American um, fantasy writer who's prolific and brilliant. Uh, my favorite over the last little while is a British writer called Joe Abercrombie, right. who has written an amazing story called the, I think it's called the First World Series or First Law World Series, something like that, and just beautifully read by a West End actor whose name escapes me. But just listening to this guy and the characters and the richness of the world that this chap creates. Yeah, I mean, I, I love them. And then non-fiction-wise, well, I've, we chatted briefly about two fairly painful books I've been reading, but we don't have to talk about them or mention them. I'm trying to think of the last really good... You know, having a child certainly curtailed the amount of reading time I have. Yeah, I mean, the last, the last really good non-fiction book I read was a by a chap called Robert Sapolsky, who is a, and I don't fall asleep because he's very entertaining, but he is a Stanford neurologist slash, he's a polymath really. He's in the neurology department. I've heard him interviewed. Have you? Yes, yes, yes. And he wrote a series of books, one called The Primate's Memoir, Mm -hmm. the other, Why Does Everyone Have 
well, I think it's Why Did Zebras Have Stripes? And then his latest tome, which is 800 pages long, is called Human. Yes. Or, yeah, it's called Human. And it's the biology and the culture and the learning of why we are what we are and why we do what we do. Uh, it's powerful. It's profound. It's entertainingly written. It's dense. And I finished it and I started on page one the day I finished it. Oh, wow. And did it, read it again. And I'm about to start again with it because it's just if you want to understand why we are like we are he's he's just he's such a polymath he's he's got there's just such a depth of insight from our biology to our culture to our learning it, he ties it all so beautifully together yeah i think awesome. that's the last really good one that i read well, thank you so much for your time, James. Um, where can people watch you? Gail's been talking about these videos. Where can people access them? So you can access my personal YouTube channel. If mm -hmm. you want, if you just go to James R.A. Hendry or go onto YouTube and, and type it in, mm -hmm. James Hendry, you'll find me. Otherwise, I'm back with Wild Earth. Right. And we do these live safaris twice a day, sunrise and sunset. I'll be back there on the 22nd of May. I'm not sure when this podcast is going to go out. But periodically, I'll be back on screen there. You can catch that on DSTV, Channel 183, or on YouTube, or on our app. Um, lots of different places you can find it. And there, I will be on screen taking on a virtual safari. And James, any idea what the next book will look like? I don't know. Uh, I really don't. I feel... Slightly lazy about rehashing these characters, but I think there's another story there, um, perhaps set in Kenya. I've spent a lot of time in Kenya, and that'll bring a whole different suite of tension and different characters and different cultures in with it. Otherwise, I've always desperately wanted to write a historical fiction story around the Anglo-Zulu War, and... It all ties quite nicely in with the diamond fields and the gold mines and, you know, culminating in, in the battles of the Anglo-Zulu War. I've always really wanted to stick a fictional character into that story and trace him through. But that's a large undertaking that uh, I hope I'll get to one day. We'll look out for that. And in the meantime, I want people to look out for Return to the Wild which is your most recent Bush yes. book. And I think the others are still in print, aren't they? They're still They're available. They're still in print. Yeah. I think they were reprinted, weren't they? They were, yeah. They were, yeah. They were reprinted. Yeah, yeah. So, absolutely. Yeah. And what a fun, easy, enjoyable reads. If we've made them in any way sound serious here, they're not. No. They are just they easy, are a lot of lovely reads. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time, Thank James. you for having me. Much appreciated. Gail, that was such fun. I know you've interviewed James many times before, but this was my first time meeting him and I really enjoyed it. And you know, Fiona, I always worry because I have interviewed him a number of times and I worry that that magic won't be there. You know, I feel like I know so much, but every time there's something new and there's just something about James that he's just, he's so funny in such a dry, self-deprecating way. And I always enjoy every encounter with him. What did you learn anew this time? So it, it was very interesting. First of all, I did not know that the first Year in the Wild book started out as a co-written book. So that for me was very interesting because on rewriting, rereading it, I had wondered where that two character energy had gone to in the other books. So that was very interesting for me. And then also I did not realize that 
James's process is as similar to mine as it is. So I also do an arc. Right. I often literally draw the arc. Where do I want to be at 40,000 words? Mm-hmm. Where do I want to be at the end? And then I fill in. I don't do the sub arcs. I'm mm-hmm. not that clever, but I do do the arc. And then I also, what he talked about, about the characters taking over. Mm-hmm. that I didn't believe it happens, but it happens like we talked about. So that was very interesting for me. And then lastly, something where I actually on the way here this morning was listening to a podcast where the the writer, I think it's Tim Weaver, was talking about you always think your next novel is the best. And James thinks he always thinks his last novel is the best, which I find interesting because I also I always think the next idea is really the best idea I've ever had. And why am I writing this book when clearly that next idea I've had is brilliant. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. for you, Fiona? I think what struck me was I admired his pragmatic attitude to writing sequels and to living in a world of established characters mm. and sort of finding the energy to do another book in that mm. world. Uh, that was interesting to me because I can see the attraction of a kind of one and done and being finished with a set of characters and then also regaining your excitement for those characters, thinking of new stories, new things for them to be doing. I think something he got right was starting his characters off young so that they've got somewhere to go in life. There are very real developments. And he's not writing the same story over and over Mm. again. There are major significant developments in their lives as they go along. And as light and fun as the books are, there are moments of tragedy. The character Angus suffers a very real loss in mm. the first book, mm. that which first book's it's, it's a bereavement that continues to haunt him all the way up to the third book. And it'll be interesting to see where he goes with that. But just that, that way of keeping your excitement for a world and a set of characters alive, I found interesting. You write a lot of series. Is that a big challenge, keeping, keeping that excitement? going, finding the new stories, going back to that world? Or is it, oh, good, I'm back in this world? Well, I think it's been both. And I think it relates to what you were saying about your next book being the best one. So when I'm maybe on book three or four of a six-book series and there's a new idea sparking in my mind, it's hard to stay in that familiar world when you're thinking, Oh, it'll be so much fun to be in this English village mm. instead of that English village, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, that is a sort of bam on seat moment, mm. power through, just get it done, do what needs to be done. And very often when you're reading over something you've written, you can't always tell the difference between the thing you wrote in a state of great excitement and the thing you wrote that was really a, a blood from stone kind of moment. So true. So true. So Gail, what is your writing advice for our readers this week? I want to talk about complicated. And I don't know if you've come across this piece of it's one of those those kind of standard pieces of writing advice. Think of a story and then complicate it. Right. Um, and because I am writing, I'm writing this rom-com and a rom-com is a different sort of structure from what I've written before. And the, the plot is inherently less complicated Mm -hmm. and I'm learning to use the complicate it advice on a more chapter by chapter basis so when it's lagging when the pace is lagging 
what can I do to complicate it? What can I throw in to complicate it? It's a good idea for when you're thinking of, of your big plot. Mm-hmm. So we, when you, th- when you are a starting writer and you think of a big plot, my advice is complicate your initial idea mm-hmm. and then you've got a novel. Right. But it right. works on a chapter by chapter level as well. And that's, that's been something I've had fun playing with recently. Yeah. For me, I've, I've just dubbed it in my head, start a fire. Uh-huh. So when the narrative is lagging and things you're not sure where things are going, maybe you're getting stuck in that sagging middle, start a fire. Suddenly they're having to deal with a fire. The, the, a barn's caught fire on the farm or uh, the church hall is suddenly on fire or whatever. But, yes, that, that's that idea of complicated. Yes. Make something happen yes. and see how your characters respond to it. I think yes. that's great advice. So if any of our listeners have read books by James Hendry, which I think is very likely because his books sell extremely well, please let us know. Um, You can get hold of us on social media. We're on Twitter and Instagram. If any of the elements of writing that we've been talking about have struck you, if you've tried them, if you're interested to try them, please get in touch. Join the conversation. We'd love to hear from you. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.